Matthew 23, verses 25 through 39. And this is the word of God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you'll kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these uh, things will come on, upon this generation." Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children to gather it together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again we bow, and Lord, you know this is hard stuff. This is hard stuff to hear. These are hard words. We know you're good. We know you're right, but we sorrow over the thoughts of people not not obeying your word, earning your judgment, and Lord, I would ask you, please, Help us. Help us to see Christ, grace, and a call to repentance in this text. God, be honored. Be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the other day we had a sad moment in my house, and I want to tell you about it before we really get into what's important My wife had made me something yummy for breakfast. We had one and only one leftover tortilla. And my wife decided to make me a breakfast burrito. It was just right. It had scrambled eggs, it had cheese, salsa, everything you need, right? And I was excited. At least I was excited until I took the first bite of the breakfast burrito. It was then that we discovered in a pretty shocking development that our salsa had gone bad. (laughs) You know the taste of rotten tomato, right? Any of y'all get that before? That does not add to a breakfast burrito. 
Now, this also shouldn't have been bad. The date was fine. But in our no artificial preservative world in our home, something must have sped up the process. And though the burrito looked good, smelled good, seemed like it was going to be great, when I took a bite, my mouth wanted to turn itself inside out. Now, before I go on, it is my moral duty to remind you all that my wife takes very good care of me. She's a good cook, very good cook. The rotten salsa was not her fault. Though, if I die suddenly and she gets a lot of insurance money, do investigate. <laughs> Just a request. Now, I'd guess that you and I have all had the experience of thinking something was good only to find out that it had gone bad, right? Have you ever had that? Yeah. <laughs> well, sadly, in the passage for today, we're going to see it happen not with food, but with people. Religious people in Jesus' day, men who carried themselves as though they were devoted to God, they're going to be exposed as being rotten on the inside. As we look at the text this morning, we're going to find three simple points to apply in our lives. And in many ways, these points are going to fit the very things we've already seen happening in this chapter. It's more important to be genuinely committed to God than to look impressive to the world around you. And if you're not willing to honor God, you're going to face God's judgment. And so we need to repent before the judgment of God comes. That's what we're after today because the judgment of God most certainly will come. And in all of this, it should remind Christians of the grace of God because Jesus came to save us from our sins and make us into the children of God. Now, the verses we study today are the final verses of the final public teaching of Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew before he goes to the cross. And Jesus is here speaking. It's probably Tuesday of the Passion Week. On Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem to the hosannas of the crowds. On Monday, he cursed a fruitless fig tree and then drove the money changers out of the temple. On Tuesday morning, the disciples saw that that fig tree had withered. It was a sign of the deadness of the nation of Israel, a nation that should have borne the fruit of repentance, but didn't. And then on Tuesday, Jesus entered into a pretty heated exchange with the religious leadership of the nation. Well, over the past several verses here in Matthew 23, we've seen Jesus first warn his followers, don't be like the religious leaders of the nation. They're hypocrites. Then starting in verse 13, we see Jesus begin to pronounce the coming judgment of God on those leaders, and it's going to be in a series of seven woes, seven curses. Two weeks ago, we saw the first four woes. The religious are going to face the judgment of God because they shut the kingdom of God in people's faces. Because they made people converts to their own moralism, not to true faith based on the word of God. Because they were deceitful in how they swore their oaths. And because they care more about man-made rules than about people's souls. Sounds rough, doesn't it? It gets worse. Let's work through the remaining three woes, and we'll find three points of application as we recognize, as Jesus says, the judgment of God will come. Point number one, 
care about integrity, not about appearance. Care about integrity, not about appearance. Start with 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. This is woe number five. And this is not complicated. It's easy to understand. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the illustration Jesus uses is that of food or drink being served. He says these men are so false that they're the kind of people that would clean the outside of the cup and dish for service, but they won't make sure that the inside's clean. Ugh. Yuck. It's a metaphor, of course. The Pharisees' religion looks good on the outside. It looks like a meal served on fine china. But the religion of the Pharisees is not actually righteous. It's like they're serving rotten food on beautiful dishes. It's like they're serving food in bowls that sparkle on the outside, even though they're unclean on the inside. Well, the sins in the bowls that Jesus here mentions are greed and self-indulgence. The religious leaders around him loved to make themselves wealthy at the expense of others. They'd look religious even while they were eaten up with desire for material prosperity. They would hurt other people in order to be comfortable themselves. But those who know and love the word of God, we're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be people who work with others to help them also follow the Lord. Uh, True faith is not about making yourself rich at the expense of other people. True religion is not about making yourself feel superior to somebody else. True faith is about glorifying God, surrendering to his word, and coming alongside each other to help one another live to the glory of God. Jesus calls the Pharisees to clean the inside of the cup so that the outside can be clean too. You know what he's calling them to do? He's calling them to repent of trying to look good while being rotten on the inside. Friends, there's no benefit before God to you looking religious if your heart is against the Lord. The benefit is when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you turn from your sin, when you follow the Lord and his word in truth. Verses 27 and 28 say something very similar. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, one number six, I think you can say, is pretty similar to number five, right? We're not even changing points here. Just has a different illustration. Jesus calls the people, the Pharisees, the scribes, whitewashed tombs. I think you know, if you've studied the Old Testament law, people could be made ceremonially unclean in a variety of ways, right? One way to be made unclean was to touch a dead body or human bone. That rendered you unable for the next day or so to righteously 
participate in a religious ceremony like the Passover feast. Well, in Jesus' day, hundreds of thousands would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. They would have to to spread out all over the land, all around Jerusalem to make the trip, find a place to stay. And one fear would be that a person who didn't know the land well, they might accidentally find themselves in contact with a tomb. They might accidentally touch a bone. They might make themselves unclean because it wasn't like, like really nice graveyards all put together. Tombs were wherever you could find a spot. So what the Jews would do was to to whitewash the stones that marked the tombs. That way, travelers wouldn't overlook them, accidentally become unclean. How frustrating would that be, by the way? You get all the kids together. You make the big, long trip to Jerusalem. The kids are whining and squabbling all the way. He's on my side. He's touching my donkey, whatever it is. And then... You get all there, tomorrow's the Passover, great. You lean up against a rock just for a nice, you know, moment. You pick up a stick, it's a leg. (laughs) We're going back home, we're unclean, we can't even be at the Passover. So the month before the Passover, all around Jerusalem, travelers would see these gleaming white stones that marked the tombs. They were beautiful. But the traveler knew to stay away because those beautiful stones hid decay, uncleanness. Jesus said the Pharisees are like gleaming graves. They look nice, but inside they're rotten. And this is why they're destined for the judgment of God. They use religion to look righteous, but they're not righteous. Church, Let me let you in on something. God hates hypocrisy. By the way, we do too, don't you? Don't you think deep down you hate hypocrisy too? Don't you hate seeing someone pretend they've got it together when they don't? Don't you hate when you see someone pretend that she's better than she really is? Care about integrity, not about your appearance. First lesson for you and me to learn here is there is no lasting value in you putting on a false face. There's no spiritual benefit in you pretending to to make others think that you're more devoted to Christ than you really are, to make them think you're spiritual when you're not. There's no benefit in lying about who you are. We need to value honesty. We need to value openness. We need to value truthfulness and even vulnerability. As you and I live our lives together as the church, you and I need to tell each other the truth. We're weak. We're frail. We're not good on our own. You know what we are? We're a collection of sinners saved by grace. Now, I do want to give us a be careful, a little caveat, a little beware, a little warning. Oftentimes, when people start talking about being open and vulnerable, it leads to a group of people who accept sinful living. I don't want us to do that. You and I can't love each other well and tolerate 
continued living in unrepentance. We need to be honest with each other even as we are committed enough to the Lord to actually repent. Jesus said, clean the inside of the cup. Don't just show off that the inside of the cup is dirty. You and I are to turn from our sin, not take pride in being willing to admit that we're sinners. Yeah, we are sinners. Let's always be honest with each other about that. And let's make a commitment here and now never to lie to one another about what we are. Stop looking, pretending like you're strong if you're not, right? Let me just ask you, just me and you outside of the notes here. How many of you are willing to let some brother or sister in Christ tell you, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm a screw up and I need help. I need prayer. Y'all okay with that? You're going to judge him and say, oh, you've got sin on you. I don't want you near me. No. If that's not who you're going to be, please don't be that way toward others either. Right? Don't hide. There's no good in that. But let's make a commitment here and now. No, we're not going to lie. But let's also make a commitment that we're going to live together to the glory of God. We're going to help each other turn away from sin. We're going to help each other worship the Lord. That's what we're going to do together. Right? Amen. Now, in many of the biblical lists, you get lists of seven things, seven woes, seven things God hates, whatever they are in the Bible. A lot of times the seventh thing on the list of seven, it's the big one. And that's going to be true here too. So let's see woe number seven as we find point number two. Expect right judgment for rebellion. Point number two, expect right judgment for rebellion. 23, uh, 29 to 31 first here. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus takes the theme of tombs and he carries it further for the seventh and final woe. The Jews of Jesus' day are hypocrites. They build monuments to prophets who were murdered by their forefathers. These Jewish leaders think, man, we're doing something real special. We've got it really good going on here. They think they're showing people, oh, we are different than the generations before us. Verse 30, Jesus tells us these men are saying that if we'd been around back then, oh, we'd have never done what our forefathers did. No, no, we're better than them. Jesus says, you want to know the truth? You guys are actually giving testimony against yourselves as you say it. You are tying yourselves to the generations that murdered the prophets. You are condemning yourself even while you try to look more righteous. You are proving yourself to be more guilty. Now, that may seem weird to you that, I, that he said that. Jesus is not saying God likes to punish children for their father's sins. That's not what we're after here. But what Jesus is doing is he's making the connection between the Pharisees and their forefathers in the fact that in truth, the Pharisees are decorating tombs, condemning those generations of the past, and then those same Pharisees are going ahead and doing something worse. 
They're more sons to their evil fathers than they would ever want to admit because they're not only willing to murder the prophets, these Jews are willing to bring about the murder of the Son of God. Jesus says in 32 and 33, fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus says, go ahead. Keep going. Fill up the full measure of the same kind of sin your forefathers committed because that's what you are. Is Jesus saying, I want you to commit sin? No. Jesus is pronouncing a condemnation for men who are not going to repent. Something very similar is in the language of Revelation uh, 22.11 reads, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. And the point of what's being said in phrases like that is to tell people, just go ahead and be what you are. If the Pharisees are going to continue to be hypocrites, if they're going to continue to oppose God, then they might as well go all the way and bring upon themselves the wrath that they deserve. Of course, of course, of course, it would be better if they would repent and be forgiven. But if they're not going to repent, if they're not going to be forgiven, it is their fate to fill up for themselves a full cup of the wrath of God. Now, this needs to remind you, by the way, be terrified. If ever you can sin and not feel conviction from the Lord. In Romans 1, how did we know that the wrath of God had come on the people when God gave them over to their own evil desires? If you're free to sin and not care, you need to fear that you are walking directly into the wrath of God. Jesus calls the Pharisees serpents and a brood of vipers. That's the language of John the Baptist from Matthew chapter 3. Here Jesus refers to the Pharisees as vipers. He refers to them as a tangle of little snake babies. It's not nice to call somebody snake babies. But you know what? Those little baby snakes, they look like little sticks you might confuse them for something that they're not. Remember Paul in Acts carrying the firewood and a viper came out of the sticks and latched onto his hand? Jesus said, you Pharisees are like those snakes. You're deceptive, you're poisonous, and in the end, you are destined for hell. He says, there is no escape, Pharisees, if you continue to be what you are. We've got to remember that hell is a real thing. Hell is a real place. Anybody that tells you hell is earth is crazy. We ain't close yet, folks. Hell is a real place. Hell is an eternal experience of the wrath of Almighty God. Hell is eternal, infinite, properly just punishment for you or me or whoever goes rebelling against the infinitely holy God. Hell is a horrible thing to consider. Hell is something that you should be desperate to avoid. Hell is the right, just wrath of God coming for sin. And please notice that the Lord Jesus, the gentle, loving Lord Jesus, does not hesitate for one instant to talk to people about hell. 
So Christians, be grateful to God for saving you from hell. If you've come to Jesus, thank God. Remember, we deserve hell. We deserve for God to have let us continue in our sin and walk straight into eternal fire. But if you have Jesus, that means God had mercy on you. He sent Jesus to save us. He gave his spirit to draw us to Jesus. And we should find great joy in salvation from the wrath of God that we've earned. And if you're sitting here and you're not yet a believer, fear the judgment to come. God will not tolerate your sin forever. Do you hear me? He won't. You must turn from sin. Repent. Come to Jesus for mercy. And if you won't bow to Jesus, if you won't seek his grace, you will face the wrath of God. Jesus laid out the question, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And Jesus tells you, if you come to him, you'll be forgiven. But if you refuse him, you will face the just wrath of God. Jesus knows many of the Pharisees and the scribes are destined for the wrath of God. And Jesus makes it clear that they will have earned it. Verses 34 through 36 reads, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus says, prophets, wise men, real scribes are coming to these people, are going to be sent to these people. Real men of God who bring the message of God have come to them before and they are coming in the future. Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, all sorts of people will have come before. They will come again. They will preach a true gospel. They will give the word of God and the scribes and the Pharisees are going to respond to them with violent rejection just like their fathers did before them. Persecution of the messengers of God has been a danger ever since the fall of man in the garden and it will continue to be a threat until the return of the Lord Jesus. And the fact that some people violently oppose the faith is a testimony to the wrath of God that they will face on the day Jesus returns. Jesus said, in the evil, in the violence of the Pharisees, they're going to prove themselves guilty of the blood of all the godly who have ever been killed for the faith. If they're willing to see the Son of God murdered, which they were, they are surely guilty of the same kind of sin that killed every godly man in the past or in the future. Thus, Jesus said the generation of teachers standing before him is guilty of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Now, this is kind of interesting, by the way. There's an interesting question as to who is Zechariah, the son of Berechiah? I would say to you that most likely this is a reference to the Zechariah in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. If you look at 2 Chronicles 24, 19 to 21, you don't have to turn there, but you can know about it. Listen to this. It said, yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. Please notice a different name there. 
And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Now, two things we've got to grasp here that are kind of neat things. One, if you consider the original Hebrew book order for the Old Testament, this includes the last recorded martyrdom in the books because the Hebrew book order has the books of the Chronicles as the last two books of what we would call the Old Testament, what they call the Tanakh, the Law, the Prophets, the Writings. Now, interestingly... Zechariah is not chronologically, by actual timeline, the last martyr in the Old Testament. That distinction goes to Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, whose death is described in Jeremiah 26, verses 20 through 23. Now, here's a little side note for you. This is just kind of, I, I keep this, and if you want to ask about it later, we can this may indeed be one evidence of how we can argue for the reliability of the Old Testament without needing to include the intertestamental writings. See, when Jesus cites the original Hebrew book order, he cited a book order that would not have included any intertestamental texts like Enoch or Maccabees. Those were books that the Roman Catholic Church said were canonical only in the 1500s at the Council of Trent. But if Jesus is upholding a book order that doesn't include them, the Roman Catholics were wrong. Something to think about. Some people also get hung up on the fact that two different names are given for the father of Zechariah. But there's a couple things you could say here. The Bible can, give, can refer to a man's father as his immediate father. It could be his grandfather when they say the son of so-and-so. Oftentimes in the Bible, people have more than one name by which they were known, right? Abram's name got changed to Abraham. Jacob's name got changed to, right? So would it be a shock to have separate names here? King Solomon, what was Solomon's other name? Ooh, got you there, huh? Who wants to look it up now? Wasn't it Jedediah? Anyway, have some fun with that. If I'm wrong, just shoot me later. Um, that was off the top of my head and I didn't look it up myself. <laughs> I thought somebody else could get it. All right. But if people have more than one name by which they're known at many times in the Bible, Matthew was also called Levi, right? Peter, Simon. There should be no trouble in thinking that there might be two different names recorded for the, Ze for the father of Zechariah. But okay, that doesn't matter. I'm just pointing out that it's no... There's no error in Scripture there. In the end, stick back with me. Whoever's looking up the name, stop that. <laughs> Do it later. In the end, the point is this. The Pharisees who are willing to reject and kill Jesus are wearing for themselves like a garment the guilt of all of the blood of all of the righteous who have ever been killed. And that means they're facing the wrath of God. And what do we need to learn? Expect right judgment for rebellion. 
You cannot oppose God and not repent and be okay. God will rightly punish all human sin. You've got to get under the grace of Jesus before it's too late. Third point, last point, repent before facing Christ. 37 through 39, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house has left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you see, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here we find the conclusion. The last thought in Jesus' last public teaching before the cross. And this is a heartfelt, sorrowful reminder of how the Jewish leaders had earned the seven woes. When Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, very compassionate speaking there, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. Who's he talking to? Who killed the prophets and stoned the people sent? Was it the common men or was it the religious leaders? It was the leaders. He hasn't changed audiences here. That's going to be important. Jesus is speaking to the religious establishment, the scribes, the Pharisees, the other religious leaders. It was the leaders of the Jews who killed the prophets. It was the leaders of the Jews who opposed the Son of God. It was the Jewish leaders whom Jesus said in verse 13 of this chapter, they shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. And Jesus said, guys, I would have gathered the children of Jerusalem together under my wings, protecting them like a hen protects her chicks. Israel had been given the command of God in the book of Daniel to put away your sin, to put away transgression, and to be ready for your king to come. God promised all through the Old Testament, I will, prom- I will protect physical national Israel so long as they keep my covenant terms that I've given them on Mount Sinai. But the Jewish leaders led the people not toward righteousness, but toward national destruction. The leaders turned the nation toward decisions that would remove from them the protection of God. If they had repented, I mean, things would have looked different. Jesus said, I would have gathered you under my wings and protected you physically as a nation, but the leaders drove the nation right off a cliff. Side note. Many people who deny the sovereignty of God in salvation, who deny a reformed Calvinistic understanding of how God saves people, will use these verses as a proof text to argue that Jesus wanted to save those people, but they wouldn't let him do so by their free will. But this is not a faithful interpretation of this text. Jesus is speaking to the leaders of gathering the children of Jerusalem, not the leaders. The leaders, by their leadership, were unwilling that the common folks follow the ways of God, that they would come to Jesus. And in the opposition of the leaders, they caused the judgment of God to fall on the city of Jerusalem. They caused the judgment of God to fall on on the nation. But this is not speaking of individual spiritual salvation from sin. 
And you cannot force a meaning on a text not, that's not even near its context just so you can defend the extra-biblical idea of man's supreme autonomous free will. It is not a faithful way to handle that text. Again, if you want to ask about that later, I'm happy to talk with you. But this verse does not speak to autonomous free will. And the result of the Jewish opposition to Jesus is going to be desolation. Your city is left to you desolate. This physical nation, because of their opposition to the Lord, is going to face great hardships. God had protected the people even as they rebelled against him. Why? So he could keep the promise of bringing Messiah through the nation, as he said he would. But now that Jesus has come, the protection of the Lord over this rebellious nation is going to be lifted. Now, I do not believe God will ever let these people be completely destroyed. But Jerusalem will be destroyed. The destruction of Jerusalem came in about 40 years from when Jesus said this. And Jesus tells the leaders here, you guys are not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118.26, which Uh, Harold read for us earlier this morning. And that phrase is also the phrase that Jesus was greeted with two days earlier when he rode the donkey into Jerusalem, remember? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that phrase is tied to the prophecy that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is telling the Jews, you are not going to see me again, not in a public display, until a day still to come when Jesus, the rejected stone, is seen as the cornerstone, the greatest stone. Because you know what? Jesus is going to come back. And Jesus is going to be king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus is going to judge all nations. And then people from the Jewish nation and all over the globe are going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So as we bring this section to a close, we need to continue to sound this one call. Repent before facing Christ. What we have to learn is that Jesus is coming and Jesus will judge but everyone who repents of sin and who turns to Jesus in faith is going to find mercy. So please repent and believe to be saved. And if you are a believer here this morning, remember the call to care about integrity, not appearance. God's not a fan of hypocrisy. Love God truly, follow God truly, know that his judgment is going to come and give God praise for the grace that he's given you that would get you out from under the judgment you deserve. And believers, just as our Advent reading reminds us, as our Advent candles remind us, as we watch the light get brighter and brighter and brighter every week, remember to look forward to the day when all the nations are going to cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because friends, that day will come. Jesus will return. Just as the people before Jesus' first coming, his first advent longed for the coming of the Messiah, you and I long for the day when Jesus returns. We await the arrival of our King who will judge sin and reward all the forgiven children of God. 
Remember the Savior who died to buy your pardon. Look forward to his return and look forward to the reward of eternity with him. And right here, right now, commit yourself to live for his glory and to deeply desire to live for the one who saved your soul. Let's pray together, friends. God, it is good to hear your word, even when your word promises judgment. We have surely deserved it, and we could not in any way stand against it. But what we would ask you for, Lord, is the gift of repentance for ourselves and our loved ones. We would ask you for the gift that we would be true, genuine, honest believers. We would ask you for the gift of your mercy upon our very souls. God, thank you for grace. Thank you for Jesus. And we would ask you here, Lord, have mercy. Teach us. Make us righteous in Christ. And as we sing, Lord, help us remember that it's the shed blood of the innocent Savior that protects us from the wrath to come. In Jesus' name, amen.